Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. And that's me, Dr. Jeff McCowage, paediatric oncologist here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney, Australia. And today I want to talk about uh, some new data that was presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting back in June. So that's ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, huge conference. And, you know, 20,000, 30,000 people there at this conference. And, you know, a whole lot of it is, you know, adult sort of cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, bowel cancer, etc. But there's enough paediatric oncology there to keep someone like me busy. And really, it's a place where some of the most important data gets presented. And today I'm going to present some uh, data that was reported in the treatment of neuroblastoma particular type of childhood cancer that I've done special episodes on. There's a whole bunch on neuroblastoma. Anyway, that's what this talk was on. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the ASCO committee chose this talk to put it in the plenary session. The plenary session is this big major session where they have five or six uh, studies getting reported and really they're the most important abstracts presented at the whole talk, I guess. You know, so the really huge groundbreaking studies in breast cancer and bowel cancer and all of those things will all be presented at this plenary session. And so when the plenary session is on, well, nothing else is on. I mean, normally at a meeting like ASCO, there's, there's multiple conference rooms and there's a whole lot of talks going on at any given time. The meeting was held in Chicago at the McCormick Place Convention Centre and there's dozens of rooms and all different presentations happening all the time. But when the plenary session is on, well, there's nothing else on. And so basically everybody goes to the plenary session because it's where huge breakthroughs get announced and so on. Just out of interest, uh, sometimes you find at the plenary session that there's people uh, there who aren't really involved in medicine, but they're more involved in the stock exchange. And if the real late-breaking data says they should buy shares or sell shares, well, they act on that. Anyway, that's not me. But what's exciting here is that a paediatric abstract, you know, an abstract is a sort of summary of the talk. So a paediatric talk was selected to be presented at the plenary session. And that doesn't always happen because really it's a very adult oncology audience at ASCO and so mostly it's adult abstracts that get presented there. And so obviously the committee considered this study and these data to be exciting enough to warrant inclusion at the plenary session. Needless to say, once the presenter started talking about it, you know, a decent chunk of the audience left because they didn't want to hear about it. And I get that. It's not what they're treating. And uh, that was their chance maybe to go and get a cup of coffee. Anyway, let me come to this study that was presented. And it was a study looking at the use of autologous stem cell transplant or autologous bone marrow transplant in the treatment of neuroblastoma. So I've done previous episodes on what an autologous bone marrow transplant is in neuroblastoma. Basically, it's a procedure where we collect bone marrow stem cells from a patient with neuroblastoma, and then we freeze them to use later on. 
So we collect them from the bloodstream with a special machine called a phoresis machine and then we freeze the cells in liquid nitrogen and then later on in treatment we do this procedure, this autologous bone marrow transplant. And that involves giving the patient you know, a really high dose of chemotherapy that would normally totally wipe out their bone marrow and it mightn't even recover or if it did it might take weeks and weeks and weeks. But at that time, we thaw out the stem cells and give them back to the patient intravenously, and then those stem cells go back to the bone marrow and make the patient recover their bone marrow function. So this has been proven in neuroblastoma to improve the chances of curing this disease. And so if you look at the high-risk forms of neuroblastoma, usually the stage 4 tumours or the ones with bad genetic changes in the tumour like NMIC amplification, that's a special gene that we look for, that makes for a more severe form of neuroblastoma. Well, if you look at those high-risk patients with neuroblastoma, well, we've proved over the years that adding in this one high-dose chemotherapy after you've done some earlier chemotherapy and surgery, well, it improves the chances of eradicating every last bit of neuroblastoma and improves the chances of therefore surviving the disease. So giving one bone marrow transplant is pretty well locked in in high-risk neuroblastoma as part of treatment. Well, what this study was about was looking at, well, if one transplant is good, could two transplants be better? So could we save up enough of these bone marrow stem cells in two separate bags of stem cells in the freezer? And then after chemotherapy and surgery, well, could we do two of these high-dose procedures? So give a big whopping dose of chemotherapy and give some stem cells back and then recover. And that, you know, that takes a few weeks. That's a pretty rough time, an autologous bone marrow transplant, normally kept in hospital for a few weeks and usually end up needing a morphine infusion for sore mouth and need lots of blood and platelets and artificial nutrition sometimes. It's a big deal. But after recovering from that, what if we give a second round of high-dose treatment with these stem cells, uh, so a second bone marrow transplant? Would that improve the chances again of eradicating every last bit of disease? So that's what this paper is about. And so the article was presented by Dr. Julie Park, and she's an oncologist at Seattle Children's Hospital and a real worldwide expert on neuroblastoma. But, you know, it had multiple other authors attached to the paper, uh, you know, all the big wigs of the neuroblastoma group of the Children's Oncology Group of North America. And that's an organisation that has multiple uh, hospitals that are members of the group, including all of the Australian children's hospitals and the New Zealand paediatric oncology units and Canadian ones and others around the world. They're all contributing uh, data to these studies. In fact, the author list even included one Dr. Peter John Shaw. He's our head of bone marrow transplant here at my own institution. But anyway, I am a member of the Children's Oncology Group. In fact, I'm the Principal Investigator for COG Studies here at my hospital. And that means that I sort of have access to um, all sorts of data that isn't ready to be presented and all that sort of thing. Now, I don't have any deep, dark secrets or anything about this paper, but just so that I'm abiding by the rules... I'll just confine what I tell you today to what's publicly available on the internet in the form of the abstract, you know, the summary from this paper that was presented. 
but I can explain it all to you as we go along without breaking any rules. So what they did in this study was a multi-center, randomized, controlled study. What they did was they got all these multiple children's cancer units across America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere, and we all agreed to be in this study, and then we put it to our ethics committees and our institutional review boards and got permission to conduct the study. And, you know, a separate group looked at the ethics of it and the safety of it and the data supporting it, and they said, yes, this is a legitimate study to be conducting. And basically what happened was parents were asked at diagnosis of neuroblastoma in their child whether they would agree to be in this study. And that's a lengthy process, obtaining informed consent, you know, and you have to explain all the background to it and what's going on and what's different to normal treatment and then obtain their permission to be in the trial. And if they didn't want to be in the trial, well, that was fine too. And you've got to remember, this is a really traumatic time for the family and to be hitting them with this complicated, randomised, controlled trial, informed consent form... Well, that's a lot for them to take in. But anyway, in those parents who agreed to participate in the trial, well, the children were treated with what you call induction chemotherapy. So that's the usual chemotherapy, pretty much, that we give for high-risk neuroblastoma. And, you know, normally it's about six cycles of chemotherapy, and normally there's an operation performed after about the fifth cycle, Uh, to remove the big tumour that's often in the abdomen, but it might be in the chest or the neck or somewhere else. And then we'd normally give the sixth cycle. And then the usual thing then would be to do this high-dose procedure of this autologous bone marrow transplant, provided the disease was under control. And so parents who agreed uh, had their child receive that treatment, and it included topotecan and cyclophosphamide, and vincristine, doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, and cisplatinum, and atoposide. And the stem cells were collected early on in the piece and frozen. Now, after they'd had their six cycles of chemotherapy, and usually a big operation as well, well, at that point, they were asked again whether they would agree to a randomization. And the randomization was between having one autologous bone marrow transplant, which is the usual therapy, or having two autologous bone marrow transplants, which was the experimental therapy. And you might wonder about how we can have a computer basically tossing a coin and randomly selecting a treatment for children, but it is a standard way that we conduct this sort of research in oncology And the ethics committees and the institutional review boards all look at it closely and agree that it's legitimate. Now, some parents would say, no, I don't like the idea of my child being randomised in a study. Or some doctors may say, no, I don't think this patient's suitable. Or they might just have had strong opinions on one transplant versus two transplants. So not all patients who get to this point will agree to the randomisation. But in those who did, well, the randomization was between having one transplant or two. So let's just go through some of the data. So the study was conducted between November 2007 and February 2012. And there were 652 patients with high-risk neuroblastoma 
who went on to that induction chemotherapy of six cycles of chemotherapy and surgery usually. And then at the end of that induction treatment, well, they had to have achieved a good level of control of the disease and they had to be medically still fit for the randomization. And then we had to have the parents and the doctors agreeing to the randomization. And so when it got to that point of randomization, out of the initial 652 patients, there were 355 patients who were randomized to one transplant or two. And there were 27 patients who were allocated to have one transplant because they were aged between 12 and 18 months with their stage 4 disease, which appears to be a more favourable group. And there was also a group of patients with stage 3 neuroblastoma without the bad gene, the NMIC amplification. And anyway, they made up 27 patients who were only going to have one transplant because giving two transplants to that group couldn't be justified because the results that you can get with just one transplant were considered too good to expose them to a second transplant. As for the remainder, there was those 355 patients who were randomised, 179 were randomised to get one transplant and 176 were randomised to get the two transplant option. And by the way, Following the transplant, uh, 249 patients went on to immunotherapy. So after the transplant, they then went on to another phase of treatment called immunotherapy. That's with this antibody, anti-GD2 antibody. So once they'd recovered from the bone marrow transplant or two, then they had that treatment. Now let's talk about the bone marrow transplants. The patients who were randomised to have just one autologous bone marrow transplant, well, the big whopping chemotherapy that they were given was a combination of drugs called CEM. CEM, that stands for three drugs, carboplatin, etoposide and melphalan, CEM. And that's a combination of drugs that's been around for years and years as a bone marrow transplant conditioning combination for high-risk neuroblastoma, CEM. And I guess you'd say that was the standard in the era of doing just one bone marrow transplant in neuroblastoma, this CEM combination. Now, the patients that were randomised to have two bone marrow transplants, well, the chemotherapy that they had for the two transplants was slightly different. The first transplant involved them getting two drugs called TC, and TC stands for thiotepa cyclophosphamide. So they had the high-dose thiotepa and cyclophosphamide, then they had some of their stem cells given back to them, and then they had a few weeks to recover, and then they had their second transplant. And their second transplant was with that CEM combination but it was slightly modified. Uh, it doesn't say in the abstract. I think the doses that were given were slightly reduced compared to the normal CEM that you get if you're only having one transplant. So there you have it. Patients were randomised just to have CEM and one bone marrow transplant or to have two bone marrow transplants, one with this thiotepa cyclophosphamide combination, and then when they recovered, they got 
the CEM combination, but it was slightly modified compared to normal CEM. Now, the first thing to mention is, well, what about the side effects of all of this? Surely giving two big doses of chemotherapy is going to have more side effects than one. Well, it turns out that as far as the really severe side effects were concerned, there wasn't a great deal of difference between the two arms of the study. So between the patients who had one transplant and the patients who had two, if you looked at the really serious side effects, they were basically similar between the two arms of the study. Okay, so the patients were enrolled on the study they were reconsented at the time of randomization. Then they had their one transplant or two transplants. And then most of them went on to immunotherapy, this antibody therapy. And they probably got given retinoic acid as well in 14-day bursts, usually six 14-day cycles of retinoic acid. It has an effect on neuroblastoma. And then they would have finished treatment. And then some years were allowed to pass. And, well, basically the question was, how many of these patients were cured of their disease or in how many did the disease grow back, you know, a relapse of the disease? And that was the key thing. So we really wanted to see, could we reduce the number of patients who had a relapse of the neuroblastoma? And so what they reported in this talk was what you call the event-free survival. And event-free survival basically meant in this study that the child was alive and that the cancer had not come back. So they were alive and disease-free. That's what you call event-free survival. And in particular, they worked out how many patients three years later were alive and they had not had a relapse of the disease. That's what they called the event-free survival. The three years was from the time of original diagnosis. So they wanted to measure how many patients three years from original diagnosis of the neuroblastoma were alive and without any relapse or progression of the neuroblastoma. And so that's the key measure. Three-year event-free survival following one transplant or following two. And the big news was that the patients who had two transplants had superior event-free survival compared to those who had just one transplant. So if you looked at the patients who had just one transplant using the standard therapy of CEM, well, it was approximately 49% of those patients, three years from diagnosis, were alive and without a relapse of the disease, 49%. But if you looked at the group who had the two transplants, then the figure was 62% who were alive and without a relapse of their disease. So it was 62% for two and 49% for one. So two transplants appeared superior to one transplant. And then the statisticians looked at all the data in great detail to work out, well, could this just have been a fluke? You know, it's like you can toss a coin 10 times and get seven heads, right? So they performed an analysis for what you call statistical significance and they found that this was statistically significant. They give you this thing called a p-value and it was 0 0.0082.
which means that this difference wasn't just a random difference that was observed. And then next, these authors just looked at those patients who had the one or two transplants and then went on to get the immunotherapy. See, these days we would usually give that immunotherapy to patients with high-risk neuroblastoma after their transplant. But back when this study was first being developed and conducted, the use of immunotherapy was still in its early stages and not all patients were receiving immunotherapy. So they looked at that particular group of patients who had one or two transplants and then had immunotherapy and they found that the event-free survival was superior in these patients who had immunotherapy. But they also found that this difference between one transplant and two transplants still existed in those patients who had immunotherapy. So in patients who had one transplant and then immunotherapy, it was 55.4% of patients at three years who were alive without a relapse. But in the patients who had two transplants and then had the immunotherapy, the figure was 73.7% event-free survival. So if immunotherapy followed the transplant, then two transplants, it was about 74%. One transplant, it was about 55% event-free survival at three years. And again, highly statistically significant. This wasn't just a random difference between the two groups. And you know what? That's a big difference. A difference of 74% versus 55%. That's like 19% difference between two transplants versus one transplant, and it's statistically significant. That's a pretty major difference between the two arms of the study. And so the authors of the article gave their conclusion and they said that doing two of these bone marrow transplants improves survival probability in patients with high-risk neuroblastoma, particularly if you then follow it with the immunotherapy and retinoic acid. Got that? That was their conclusion. Two transplants is better than one. Okay, so now we have to decide, well, what does that mean for the future? Does that mean that all patients with high-risk neuroblastoma, if they have their disease broadly under control and they get to the point of transplant, well, should they all have two transplants instead of one? That's the big question, isn't it? Because it's a lot to put children through. It's a lot of days in hospital. I guess it's a lot of expense for the healthcare system. So should we be routinely doing two transplants instead of one? Okay, so now let me waffle on a bit about this. And what I've got to say about it is not based on the discussions that I heard at the ASCO meeting, because probably I'm not allowed to just go and blurt that all over the place. Probably, probably I'd need some sort of copyright permission to come out and say everything that was said at the meeting. But I'll just give you some of the thoughts that I have. So one of the things to say is that this two transplants is better than one has to be seen in the context of patients who are receiving that particular induction chemotherapy. So you know that six cycles of chemotherapy before they get to the transplant, 
that's a very American type of protocol, COG type of protocol for induction chemotherapy in high-risk neuroblastoma. So if you were being treated in Europe, for instance, they are likely to have a different induction combination. I think they often have something called rapid COJEC, which has a different sort of combination and dosing of drugs. And I don't think anyone can say that the European or the American is superior, but whenever you fiddle with one element of a program, you have to wonder, can it affect the whole program? So we can say that two transplants appeared better than one transplant in the context of US-style induction chemotherapy and US-style immunotherapy to follow. The European immunotherapy is slightly different as well. And again, I don't think we can say it's better or worse, but it is different. The other thing we mustn't do is conclude that two transplants is better than one transplant. We can't quite say that. We can say that two transplants using thiotipocyclophosphamide and then a modified CEM is better than one transplant using a standard CEM. And again, in the context of American-style induction chemotherapy. So it's not just that it's a transplant. It's a transplant using a particular combination of drugs. So in Europe, they have conducted a big study comparing two different types of transplants. So in patients with high-risk neuroblastoma, they have completed a study where all the patients got just one transplant but some got a transplant using this CEM combination, just like the American studies, but some had a different combination of high-dose chemotherapy for their transplant, a combination using busulfan and melphalan. Busulfan and melphalan, abbreviated BUMEL. Well, I know that in the European studies, BUMEL was superior to CEM, in their hands, in the setting of European induction chemotherapy, blah, blah, blah. You got that? That's vitally important. In Europe, Bumel for the transplant gets better results than CEM, which is like the American CEM. So in Europe, they're likely to say, well, Bumel is superior. Now, what we don't have is any evidence that Bumel is superior in the context of the American induction program. So if, for instance, we thought that BUMEL in America and Australia, Canada, would be better than CEM, and we don't have that evidence, well, then you'd ask the question, okay, two transplants is better than one, but if the one was BUMEL, not CEM, would two transplants still be better than one? So it's incredibly complicated. And we can't lock in this notion that two transplants is better than one. We can only lock in that two transplants using this particular combination of chemotherapy is better than one in the context of giving American-style induction chemotherapy, etc. And perhaps future studies will need to be done to see if two transplants are better than one if you use Bumel for the one. I don't know, maybe someone will design a study to look at that, but I don't think we have that data yet. But anyway, it's a very good quality article. It's been conducted by a very reputable group and very robust statistics, and it really looks like two transplants is better than one in this particular context. 
Now, I bet the committee and the statisticians will be out there and they'll look at the 179 patients versus 176 and they'll do what you call a subset analysis. You know, they'll look at particular different groups of patients within it and see, well, who were the ones that benefited most from having two transplants? And it might be that certain patients absolutely definitely should always get two transplants and it might be that some uh, don't get much benefit from the second transplant so perhaps they should only have one. But I'll await the study committee to bring out that data. I haven't seen it. But it's the sort of thing that would typically be being done and might need a few more years of follow-up and so on and so on. But there you have it. Exciting data does suggest two transplants better than one. But as always in medicine, there'll be a whole lot of other considerations. We'll have to look at whether patients are capable of having two transplants. Uh, What's their kidney function like? What's their cardiac function like? What's their liver function like? What's the state of their disease? Have they got bad infections? There's all sorts of other things to consider. And I wouldn't think that every paediatric oncologist in the world is now going to be recommending two transplants as a routine. But I think this is pretty important data and there'll be situations where people will start to think "Mm, two transplants uh, might well be the thing to do. In all likelihood, there'll be ongoing studies and we'll be looking at two transplants or one transplant with different conditioning and et cetera, et cetera, in the context of other clinical trials moving forward. But for now, this is what we've got. So I'll leave it there for now. I hope to bring you a few more uh, highlights from the ASCO meeting in the coming weeks. But for now, hang on to that child, look after yourself, be nice to the nurses, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.